Chapter thirty one of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty one. That would be too horrible. Lord Blatchmardon was discovered after some trouble in an upland field, contemplating the performance of a steam plough which had been lent him by a well to do tenant. He was surprised to see Sir Everard in company with Lady Frances, and was hearty in his congratulations on the baronet's return to his native soil. "'There's no place like old England, after all,' said the Earl. "'The smell of the newly turned earth on a spring morning is better than all your southern climates and mineral waters. But you're not looking so well as I had hoped to see you after your travels, Sir Everard. You look fagged, sir, fagged. People will overdo it when they go abroad.' "'I have been giving my daughter a hurried view of Italy as we came home,' answered Sir Everard, "'and I dare say we both worked a little too hard.' Mm, "'Sad news, this, about Morton Blake,' said the Earl. "'Is he so very ill?' "'I'm afraid there's very little chance of his coming round again from what Jeb told me yesterday. "'He won't eat and he can't sleep, and about the only thing he seems able or inclined to do is die.' "'But perhaps now Miss Courtney has come home she may be able to mend matters.' "'I'm afraid not,' said Sir Everard, and then he explained what had happened between Morton and Dulcie, and made his request about Lady Frances. "'What? Rob me a fan? That's rather hard lines. Who's to sing to me of an evening, and who's to beat me at billiards while she's away? I shall miss her dreadfully, but I dare say the change might do her good.' Blatchmardon is a dull old hole for any girl to live in, and Fan has refused Lady Luffington's offer of another season in Clarges Street. She doesn't care for London society. Do you want to go to Fairview, Fan? I should like to be with Dulcie for a few days, especially as she is in trouble, replied Lady Frances. Ah, so be it then, Fan. Go and cheer her up a little. I'll ride over tomorrow morning and see how you take to the new pasture. Don't keep her too long, Sir Everard. She is the chief delight of an old man's life. <laughs> After steam ploughs and new varieties of mangle, papa. <laughs> when am I to come, Sir Everard? Well, I should like to drive you home with me at once. And Moulty can send my portmanteau after me. May I go, papa? Oh, you may do what you always do, Fan. Exactly what you like. Oh, best of sheets. Adieu. She gave his lordship a hug, and then bounded lightly across the heavy ground, just as the steam plough came snorting and tugging towards her, as if maliciously intent upon running her down. Miss Moulton was infinitely surprised when her pupil came rushing into the snug little morning-room, where that indefatigable lady was at work darning house-linen, to announce that she was going to start immediately on a few days' visit to Fairview. Lady Frances and Miss Courtney had been tolerably intimate for the last two years, but they had never stayed under each other's roofs, they had never exchanged confidences of any kind, and now it seemed strange that Frances should be eager to bear Dulcie company. As yet, Miss Moulton knew nothing of the change that had taken place in Dulcie's relations with Morton. "'I'm off this instant with Sir Everard. You and Betsy will pack my trunk, won't you, dear?' You know what I shall want better than I know myself, because I always forget things. 
Good-bye, you dear old soul. Take care of the pater and of your dearer self, though that is the last individual you ever think of. And so Frances rattled out of the room, took her neat little felt hat and warm jacket from their place in the hall, kissed her old governess half a dozen times, and then stepped lightly to her place in the high phaeton. "'I feel awfully grand,' she exclaimed, as they drove along the avenue. "'Papa never drives such a trap as this. He has only a rakish little Newport Pagnell and the big family ark, which my grandfather and grandmother used to drive in, a chariot with lemon-coloured panels and moth-eaten damask cushions. I believe it's rather a chosen resort for the sheikh's particular breed of Cochin Chinas, and that most of our eggs are laid there.' Frances stole a look at her silent companion, blushing a little at her own loquacity. What a grave and thoughtful face it was, indicative of a self-contained nature, a mind which would jealously guard the secrets of its joys and sorrows. It was a face full of interest for a youthful observer, for it was fraught with meanings that youth cannot fathom, and had all the charm of mystery. Dulcie was surprised at her visitor's arrival, but received her with gentle courtesy. Of all companions her father could have chosen for her, perhaps Lady Frances Grange was the least welcome, not because of any objection that she had to Frances herself, but on account of her conviction that Morton had cared for Frances in the past, and was very likely to care for her still more in the future. Sir Everard went off to his library, and left the two girls together in Dulcie's morning-room. They were sitting side by side on the sofa, Dulcie's hands fidgeting nervously with a piece of cruel work, and Frances watching her pale, sad face. The effort which she was continually making to appear cheerful in her father's presence left her dull and apathetic when she was out of his sight. "'My dear Dulcie,' said Frances, putting her arm round the girl's slim waist, "'you are not looking so cheerful as I would wish.' "'I have not much reason to be cheerful,' Dulcie answered rather moodily. "'I suppose papa has told you that my engagement with Morton is broken?' "'He has told me, and I am infinitely surprised.' "'I wonder that you should be surprised,' said Dulcie. "'Indeed? But why should I not be surprised?' "'Because it struck me that you might have some clue to papa's reason for wishing me to break the engagement.' "'Dulcie, what can you mean?' "'Come, child, I am a very outspoken individual, not given to beating about bushes when I can go straight to a point. "'Has anybody led you to suppose that Morton has ever wavered in his constancy to you? "'Can you believe that he is capable of being false?' "'Falsehood is a hard word,' faltered Dulcie. "'No, I could never believe him capable of falsehood or meanness. "'But his feelings might undergo a change.' he might find that he's been mistaken that a sentiment which he had believed a lasting affection was only a passing fancy and that his real love had been unconsciously given elsewhere you don't think that he ever cared for me i hope said francis bluntly i have thought that it might be so then you have been egregiously mistaken oh, what a foolish little thing you are and was it for this idiotic reason that you broke with him no it was my dear father's wish that our engagement should come to an end he refused to give me any reason but i fancied somehow that he thought morton cared more for you than for me you are an obedient daughter exclaimed frances somewhat contemptuously 
than to gratify a whim of your father's you spoiled morton's happiness and your own oh, i should like to see my dear old sheik asking such a sacrifice from me if i cared for any one as you must have cared for morton my father is all the world to me said dulcie tenderly he and i have been all in all to each other ever since i was seven years old then you never ought to have engaged yourself to morton said frances severely and then she relented and drew dulcie's golden head on to her shoulder and tenderly caressed the bright hair oh my pet i did not come here to scold you but to comfort you she said lovingly but it is always best to know what we are talking about the idea of you being jealous of poor look down upon me oh don't you know that morton has always treated me with the sublime contempt with which young men generally regard their sisters i have not a taste nor an inclination that is not discordant to him he hates slang and detests horsey girls and i am both slangy and horsey however i have no doubt you did right in pleasing your father who idolises you and i know that time will bring consolation for your grief at parting with poor morton i don't believe that i shall ever feel less sorry than i do to-day said dulcie with conviction oh yes you will trust my experience for that women have a wonderful capacity for getting over a grief of that kind how do you know well, because i had a little trouble of my own once upon a time and i think i have mastered it oh you are so brave and bright tell me all about it urged dulcie looking up at her affectionately she had never known what it was to have a companion and a confidant of her own sex her only friend her only adviser had been her father and now for the first time in her life she found that there was comfort in girlish sympathy and girlish friendship no dearest it was all foolishness i had rather not talk about it the wound is not so completely healed that i can bear to touch it carelessly just yet let us talk about other things what a sweet room this is so bright and womanly full of china and flowers and all womanly things and what a lovely piano that was a new year's gift from papa oh privileged young person to have a father with power and inclination to give such gifts so far as inclination goes my father would load me with benefits but he never has any spare cash what an interesting man sir everard is oh is he not i am so glad you like him he is all goodness and thoughtfulness for others and yet people do not always understand or even like him he is too reserved in his manners to please everybody oh i don't care a straw for the kind of man who pleases everybody that order of being would never interest me as your father does he gives me the impression that he has known some great sorrow and has never entirely recovered from the shock oh you have heard his story have you not it was my poor mother's sudden death which overshadowed his life he wandered about alone upon the continent for years and it was only seven years after mamma's death that he brought me back to fairview i had been brought up by my aunt in wales and i had not seen my father once during all that time i think the very idea of me was hateful to him in those days it was only later that he began to find out there was some comfort in having a daughter from that time forward my chief duty has been to cheer and console him 
and to that duty you are willing to sacrifice your own happiness well dulcie my dear you are a good girl and i will never incite you to rebellion the two girls passed the morning together happily dulcie took frances on a tour of exploration round the gardens and stables and poultry-yard where everything was new to herself after nearly four months absence they looked at hothouses and greenhouses and had long confabulations with the head gardener who was a man of taste and had always some small improvement to suggest to miss courtenay then came a ramble through the house during which dulcie chose the prettiest spare room for her visitor a room with an old tudor window wreathed with australian clematis and yellow jessamine then came luncheon at which meal sir everard rarely appeared so the two girls had the dining-room to themselves and then dulcie proposed a drive in her pony carriage oh if you don't care about driving very much i think i'd rather loaf about the garden with you or hear you play chopin on that delicious piano said frances artfully oh i don't care in the least about driving i only want to amuse you oh then let us stay at home by all means decided frances she considered herself in some measure the guardian of dulcie's peace sir everard had told her that he wished to keep the knowledge of morton's illness from his daughter were they to drive through the village they would be almost sure to meet shafto jebb or mr mawk the curate or some other gossip who would inevitably condole with dulcie about her lover's illness the only safety was in keeping within the four walls of fairview where the servants had been warned to say not a word to their mistress they went back to the morning-room and frances seated herself in luxurious idleness on the fleecy white rug in front of the wood fire now play away to your heart's content dulcie dear while i abandon myself to dreams of all that might have been had life been utterly different even the most matter-of-fact people are sentimental once in a way and chopin always sets me dreaming well what shall i play lady frances if you call me lady frances i shall go home this afternoon call me fan it sounds rather like the name of an asthmatic blenheim spaniel but all the people who care for me call me by it morton used to call you fan i remember said dulcie my dearest morton cares for me just as much as he cares for his horse or his dog he is used to me we have ridden and danced and played billiards together and before he knew you blatchmardon was the chosen resort of his idle hours did you see much of him while we were away faltered dulcie oh very little he was busy with his election don't you know answered frances hurriedly dreading lest the next question should be an inquiry about morton's health and spirits i think dearest we had better not talk of him it's only fostering your unhappiness then i will play to you and think of him answered dulcie softly she played the saddest minor strains of her favourite composer while frances grange sat looking at the burning logs and thinking what a tangled skein life was altogether why had sir everard insisted upon the rupture of an engagement which for nearly a year he had seemed to approve the whole thing appeared arbitrary and unkind to the last degree yet i cannot believe him ungenerous or unkind she thought remembering the grave beauty of that thoughtful face whose meaning she had so vainly tried to penetrate what a noble heart that must be which could be steadfast for twenty years to the memory of a lost love 
how many men in sir everard's position would have married after a year or two of widowhood these considerations gave the thoughtful recluse of fifty a curious interest in francis grange's mind dulcie played for an hour or more and then the two girls put on their hats and jackets and wandered out into the garden again it was a mild sunshiny afternoon and the view from the terrace looked lovely in the clear light they walked up and down for some time talking and they were just turning to go back to the house when dulcie saw a figure approaching them along the avenue that led from the lodge gate oh surely it's miss hardman she exclaimed what an odd thing for her to call alone oh you had better not see her said francis hastily sir everard would not like it why should he mind it can make no difference yes i shall certainly see her she is a dear good true-hearted girl and i shall hear all about morton and aunt dora my auntie i used to call her thinking that she would be really my aunt before long oh fanny i can't tell you how fond i am of her or how good she has been to me and now she must think me false and ungrateful oh, why should she think that she must know that you only obey your father but she cannot tell what pain and grief that obedience costs me she may think that i can throw morton off without a pang i dread meeting even lizzie hardman then run indoors as fast as you can and leave me to explain matters to her she will easily understand that you don't care to meet any one from tangley urged frances feeling that this was the last chance of warding off those evil tidings which dulcie was sure to hear from miss hardman no i would not be uncivil to her for the world lizzie was close to them by this time she held out her hand to dulcie but there was a coldness in her greeting quite unlike her old manner to morton's betrothed of course you've heard she said heard what if it's about morton you're talking i have heard nothing what nobody's told you that he's at death's door that for once in a way a broken heart is likely to prove fatal dulcie turned pale as death and clung to frances as if she would have fallen to the ground without her support how cruel of you to bounce out your information upon her like that exclaimed frances indignantly somebody must tell her the truth she has been cruel to morton she has trifled with him and broken his heart why should she not be told that he's dying it's no harder for her than for others oh, not dying gasped dulcie oh, for god's sake don't say that he's dying he is so near death that it will need almost a miracle to save him he was so fond of you that perhaps the very sight of you will bring him back to life will you come to him Oh, yes answered dulcie without a thought of father or duty dulcie remonstrated frances feeling that her position was becoming momentarily more critical you forget your promise to sir everard i promised my father that i would not marry morton not that i would not see him i will come this instant lizzie you must explain everything to papa fanny i would not face him in his anger for worlds dulcie you must not do anything so rash remonstrated frances if you want to save his life come at once pleaded lizzie i left the pony carriage at the lodge oh, you're dressed come at once i promised morton he should see you to-day what good can it do expostulated lady frances 
perhaps none he may die before to-night but he would like to see her and i think she would like to see him before he goes before he goes then you think he's dying cried dulcie the doctor seemed to have very little hope yet i believe he is just a shade better to-day and that the improvement has arisen from the hope of seeing you why not wait to ask your father's permission urged frances and risk a refusal no there's no time for waiting come said lizzie i will drive you back when you have seen him and then i can explain everything to my father said dulcie i shall be back in time for dinner you must give papa his cup of tea frances dear and beg him to forgive me i would as soon face a lion in his wrath thought frances they had been walking towards the lodge during this conversation there stood aunt dora's basket carriage and sturdy grey pony a boy in pepper and salt in attendance upon him lizzie jumped in and took the reins dulcie seated herself by her side the boy sprang to his place behind and away spun the pony towards tangley at a capital pace like a pony that knew a good deal depended upon him how long has he been ill asked dulcie in a low voice oh for many weeks from the time of the election he seemed out of spirits and he kept aloof from us all we thought that his failure worried him and that he would get over it all the better if he were left to himself but as time went on he got into a very low way he could not sleep he was always roaming about wrote and read late into the night led an irregular rambling kind of life then he broke down altogether took to his bed and began to be alarmingly delirious it seemed to be a kind of brain fever but even the london physician could hardly give us any definite explanation of the illness or what had caused it all we could do was to nurse him carefully and we've done that said lizzie with tears in her eyes it has been a terrible time for us all and god only knows how it is to end a quarter of an hour's rapid driving brought them to tangley manor you shall not see any one except morton unless you like said lizzie thoughtfully as she drove in through the stable gates which were at the side of the house screened from all the windows by the thick growth of shrubberies and fine old trees miss blake is lying down in her own room the two girls will be in the drawing-room they are almost worn out with anxiety and suspense poor things and think it hard that they are not allowed to help in the nursing but mr jebb thought it better that aunt dora the old nurse and i should take entire charge of morton i shall be very glad to escape seeing them answered dulcie i should feel like a criminal in their sight and yet heaven knows i am not to blame we'll slip up to morton's room said lizzie when they had alighted at a little side door there's no one with him but old becky they went in through a lobby and ran lightly up the servant's staircase which brought them to the corridor that led to morton's room silently and softly lizzie hardman led dulcie to the sick-room it was in semi-darkness the old nurse was nodding by the fire morton was talking to himself in a strange rambling way as the door opened but quietly as lizzie opened it he lifted himself suddenly in his bed and called out dulcie my dulcie come to me in the next instant he was sobbing on her shoulder clinging to her with his wasted arms oh my love my love how changed you are sighed dulcie looking tenderly down at the hollow cheeks the ghastly pinched face your work dulcie 
you thought it was nothing to fling me off but to me it has made all the difference between joy and despair life was not worth living without you and then he fell back on the pillow exhausted and his mind began to wander again he talked ramblingly in broken sentences and dulcie caught only the words his daughter better to be parted treason against the dead she sat by his bed holding his shrunken hand in hers sometimes bending down to kiss it tenderly raining tears upon it her soul was rising up in rebellion against her father all the while for the first time in her life she felt herself in revolt against him why had he parted her from morton to what end was all this misery when he imposed this parting upon her she had believed trusting entirely in her father's goodness that he knew morton to be in some manner unworthy of her affection that he had spared her the humiliating knowledge of her lover's inconstancy but here was morton constant even to death for what end save to satisfy an unjustifiable caprice of her father's had he been brought to the edge of the grave oh how they must all hate me dulcie said to herself the old nurse had retired to the adjoining room lizzie sat half hidden in the big armchair by the fire there was no sound save the dropping of the ashes on the hearth and those occasional murmurs of disjointed speech from morton dulcie sat by him for an hour his hand clasped in hers almost all the time once he looked up at her with a smile strangely unlike his own as it seemed to her and murmured it is good of you to come it is very sweet to see you once more if only for a little while my darling fate has parted us dulcie your father was right he showed his sound judgment it seems cruel doesn't it sorely hard upon you and me yet it was just and right it's the one act in his life which i cannot blame was this delirium dulcie asked herself or did her lover really mean that he approved of sir everard's conduct in cancelling their engagement his speech implied that there was some reason why he and she should be parted and that her father had acted wisely and honourably in recognising that reason yet what possible cause for their severance could there be so long as morton was true and of his truth and constancy there could be little doubt she dared not question him in his weak state lest she should agitate him she could only sit quietly by his side wondering at his strange words and inclined to think that they were only a portion of that delirious speech which as lizzie had told her had been one of the most alarming features of his illness continuing so long that the doctors had begun to fear that the patient's brain must be permanently injured for some time morton lay motionless and silent as if unconscious of dulcie's presence then he suddenly turned his face to the wall with a groan of bitterest anguish oh, the son of the murdered and the daughter of the murderer that would be too horrible he cried End of chapter 31